Fusapod, conversations about creativity, community, and the things that matter. If one is interested in doing social innovation, I would argue that the most important thing you can find is the social norm that is between you and success. And then the next thing you can do is experiment with a variety of, of deviants until you figure out how to subvert, get that norm out of the way. What can modern art museums teach us about commemorating the Holocaust? And why is legislation not enough to stop human trafficking? What are some of the recurring patterns that help us innovate by shifting behaviors, crafting culture, and making systems change? Welcome to FUSAPOD, a podcast about creativity, community, and the things that matter. I'm Lishan Huang. In this episode, David Colby-Reed and I speak with Jeff Leitner to explore these questions and to discuss social innovation more broadly. Jeff has worked on social innovation projects in fields ranging from international diplomacy to healthcare to public education. Responding to a request from a collaborator, he has documented the method that he uses for social innovation in a curriculum called the Social Innovation Dynamics. These social innovation dynamics, known as ID for short, are now taught in schools, master's and PhD programs, and executive education courses all over the world. ID is available to the general public in the form of a printed guide. The printed guide also comes with a key to unlock a series of online instructional videos and a downloadable workbook. Here's Jeff Leitner. What we knew began to surface in two interesting ways. Uh, the first is that we noticed patterns in problem solving that we had not noticed before, but also had no way to name. So the way it manifests itself is we would be in the middle of something, working on something with the U.S. Holocaust Museum in Washington, and it would occur to us that the problem we were running up against was a lot like a problem related to contemporary art that we had tackled in Philadelphia. And for anybody who wasn't us, that's a weird sentence, right? That the same pattern emerged in the Holocaust as it did in contemporary art. And we didn't understand what it meant, and it made us sort of unseemly and impolitic when we said stuff like that out loud. So we kept it to ourselves, but we kept noticing these patterns. And what we discovered is that there were a certain number of paths that we always followed to get to breakthroughs. And we had never heard anybody name the patterns before, but they kept showing up in our work organically. So that was one. The second thread that came together is that we got to be friends with people like you who were user experience designers. None of us are user experience designers. We don't claim to understand much about user experience design, though for uh, laymen, we probably know way more than most laymen, but it's only because we've gotten to hang out with you guys a lot. And we began to see that y'all had ways of approaching problems uh, that, uh, that lined up with, not perfectly, but well enough with the patterns we had noticed that we began to have names for things. Now, the names we have now don't really match anything from user experience design, but it was our jumping off point uh, that, that there was this sort of systematic approach to design that we found helpful in trying to understand our own system of discovery. The Innovation Dynamics curriculum defines social innovation as the systematic disruption of a social norm to affect social change. 
The curriculum prompts would-be social innovators to look for existing social norms that preserve the status quo and prevent change from happening. While both design and ID are looking to shape human behavior, we found it interesting to think of norms rather than, say, empathy as a starting point. Jeff Leitner explains. So if you think about a person, let's imagine that the way a person behaves is determined by three things generally. The first, and we'll say from the floor up to the middle thigh, we'll, we'll ascribe that, we'll attribute that to sort of how our brains are wired, to brain chemistry, to behavioral economics. These are things we're born with. There's not a lot we can do about. Then let's say that the second kind of bundle of behavior is determined by, you know, let's say from the middle thigh to the middle chest, is determined by sort of our own pathology, our own psychology. And that you can get at that really effectively with things like user experience design. You can get to it with psychology, which is, you know, what, what is this person's motivations? What is it they care about? In this space, empathy is really important. But we kept noticing that there was this sort of unspoken dynamic all the time that nobody had any name for. And that was, let's say, from the middle chest up to the top of the head. And that was this third bucket of things that drive our behavior. And those are the social dynamics that we're responding to all the time, habitually. And those are captured in the idea of social norms, which are these unwritten rules that we're all following all day about how to behave in any situation. So it's said to us that if you want change, you have to modify the social rules that guide people's behavior. And that is the fundamental idea behind what is emerging for us as a kind of social norm design, which says you're going to have to deal with the group dynamics if you want real, substantive, lasting change. You can't just design for a person. You have to design for a social environment because everybody in that social environment reinforces each other all the time. This approach of starting with norms, identifying norms, and then looking to disrupt those norms from this group level, this community level, or social level, reminds us of a quote, famous quote from Eliel Saarinen, the Finnish-American architect and designer who basically talked about designing a chair in the context of the table that the chair is going to be used with, or the table in the context of the dining room, the room in the context of a house, the house in the context of a city street. So it's all about designing for the next bigger context. And so we see this parallel with ID as well, looking at the social context of norms, because norms are not just individual behaviors, they're social in nature by their very definition. So if we want to affect change in people's behavior, it isn't just enough to understand Joe or Joanne. We have to understand the social environment in which Joe or Joanne exists. And that social environment is, is furnished with social norms. I'll give you an example. Joe knows that you cannot drive faster than 60 miles an hour on the expressway or you'll be breaking the law. Right. He absolutely knows that. He knows the law. He can see the street signs with a speed limit posted. And if everybody around Joe is going 70 miles an hour, I assure you Joe is going 70 miles an hour. We all do it. Now, why do we do that? It is because our behavior is guided by social norms more than it's guided by anything else. 
more than it's guided by rules or laws or budgets or timetables. It's what's going on in Washington right now that has people feeling so unsettled, which is that the norms of how government is supposed to work seem to be violated. And these are unwritten, unspoken rules that we depend on as a society. And if you want to affect change, that's the level where you should work. I'm just reminded really powerfully of uh, an example that Michael Sandel gives. Uh, he's a philosopher, but he talks about the example of littering. You can go to the Grand Canyon and you don't throw your empty beer cans into the Grand Canyon because of the threat of a fine. You know, if there's a sign posted saying that there's a fine, you don't commit that kind of action because of the normative value of like littering and, and desecrating this beautiful natural site is normatively wrong. And, That's correct. You know, these norms end up shaping our behavior, much to your point. And it's interesting because depending on your disciplinary outlook, I think we see different levers to pull. You know, uh, a law and order type or maybe even an economist might say like a fine is a perfectly fine incentive, you know, negative incentive to avoid littering there. You know, a designer might say like, oh, well, let's make sure that there are affordances like recycling bins and so on nearby. And I think that when you get to this level of culture crafting and like operating at the level of norms, that's when you start to get the most pervasive levers for modifying behavior, you know, uh, like that, no, this is wrong to litter in the Grand Canyon. That's the more powerful force there. And so I just wanted to complement that discussion with that example. Uh, that's right. So, so here's how we look at uh, innovation. We suggest that innovation, social innovation, and by social we mean any innovation that, that has to do with people. So we don't mean social as a code word for good or noble. We just mean social relating to people. Any people innovation is not a real innovation until it results in a lot of behavior change. So if a designer put more and subtle trash cans around the Grand Canyon, that might be a perfectly good thing to do, but it doesn't rise to the level of an innovation until it changes the norms around the Grand Canyon. So for us, these are uh, levers. So inventing an app is a great uh, way to try to affect behavior change, but until you get to behavior change, you don't have an innovation. So that is the, you know, the app, the trash cans. Uh, David, even the law about littering isn't a real innovation until it results in behavior change. And behavior change should be the measure of all of that. I agree with you completely. And our whole outlook around community-centered design, I think, internalizes some of the logic that you've just articulated, too, that behavior is transmitted socially and monitored socially, and we assess, you know, the appropriateness of our behavior through a social lens as well, you know. And so when we're thinking about designing communities, we can think about cultivating community and connecting people, certainly, but also we have to look at the community as the appropriate level of action for norm transmission and community scale interventions require like shared assumptions and, and shared perceptions about like what is appropriate. That's I think some of the most interesting territory that we can get into now, you know? That's winning. Winning 
is a new norm around what behavior is appropriate. And anything we do as designers or builders or makers, anybody who's trying to affect behavior change needs to be aiming at the creation of a new norm. And creation of a new norm is very hard to do. The first thing you have to do is understand what the old norms are. And then we contend in our methodology that what you want to do is find a deviance that will subvert that norm and then diffuse that deviance until it becomes the new norm. And if you stop short of that, then the intervention into a community, into a society will not hold. I have a friend who works on human trafficking, and she led the fight to get new legislation in California that discourages companies from, it encourages companies to do something with their supply chain that would draw them away from human trafficking and their international work. Great. And it has affected almost no change. And the reason is, is because all the norms that these companies are following are all the same. And when you throw a law into a place where the norms are unchanged, people just figure out how to circumvent the law. And, and so, you know, the question to her is, what would it take to change that norm? That, of course, we would never hire slave labor. So uh, marriage equality is a great example. You know, the reason we have advances in the last few years is not because of the law. The law is evidence that we have traction. So, you know, norm change was facilitated by legislation, but the big kahuna, the big win is the norm change. The reason there's the outrage about the president's quasi-directive on transgenders in the military is because the norm has changed. The norm change, it doesn't have anything to do with the rule. And everybody said, wait, that seems to be a violation of what we collectively believe. And that is relatively new. But that's so the law doesn't have anything to do with it. It's the norms that have been violated in that case. This is very useful in the environments where people are trying to figure out how to social innovate. I made up a verb mm -hmm. to uh, to do social innovation. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it is not terribly useful in environments where people are learning how to protest at their congressman's office or congresswoman's office. You know, take it for what it is. If one is interested in doing social innovation, I would argue that the most important thing you can find is the social norm that is between you and success. And then the next thing you can do is experiment with a variety of, of deviants until you figure out how to subvert and get that norm out of the way. So let me bring up another example, which I think will help us understand this idea of the norms and the deviance and, and this relationship between social innovation and changing policy. And so the example is the, the so-called sharing economy kinds of services, whether it's Lyft or Uber for cars or Airbnb for homes, and that paying people for a ride existed for a while or paying to stay at somebody's house uh, has existed for a while, but these apps and these services have really scaled that on a different level, right? So growing up, we were told, like, you don't get into strangers' cars, or you don't stay at the homes of random strangers, but now it's almost totally normal for people to do this, even though in a lot of jurisdictions, the, the laws are still catching up or there's still social debate on whether or not 
these are desirable behaviors, but in some ways the, the genie's out of the bottle, right? The cat's out of the bag in terms of these kind of behaviors, even if the laws haven't caught up or, or that these, this diffusion of social norms is still very much unbalanced where it's totally acceptable in some uh, social circles and still kind of this weird thing in others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what, what's most interesting to me about, uh, about the sharing economy, as you described it, is that somehow the social norms around staying in people's homes or getting a ride from them when they're not official full-time drivers, that somehow the norms have changed that make that normal. And so why did that happen? Uh, I think there were a lot of good decisions made along the way that made that palatable. I'm not sure anybody took it on that directly. I'll give you an example of it when, I mean, this is not exactly the same thing, of of something like this that didn't work. So a hundred years ago, because I'm that old, uh, I represented Webvan, which was the first effort, I don't know if you remember it, you could order your groceries online and they would bring them to your door. And it was uh, it was started by the folks at Borders, speaking of uh, the pantheon of companies that no longer exist. And uh, everything was well funded. It was well thought of, uh, well thought out, everything. But the norms around getting your groceries just hadn't changed. And it right. struck people as weird to go online. It wasn't that the technology wasn't good. Uh, it was. It still struck people as weird to do it, and nobody was reinforcing for each other that it was a really good idea, which is the key to norms. That uh, the rest, our friends and family, and the other people who influence us every day, have to be suggesting to us at some level that this is okay, and not punishing us for doing it. And you know, the, like I said, the technology was fine. The food was fresh. You didn't have to tip. Just everything was right about it, and the norms about it were so wrong. I don't know that anybody engineered exactly the social norms that made the sharing economy work. I suspect there were a lot of economic pressures that made it possible. But I would love a grad student somewhere to deconstruct how the norms changed on that and exactly what triggered those changes. So our methodology suggests that it is possible systematically, methodologically, to ask a series of questions to help uncover norms that might be in your way of being successful in either your social or commercial effort. That between where you're standing and where it is you want to go, there's this sort of invisible furniture that's in your way. And, you know, it never occurred to me that there would be a norm that led my neighbors to frown on me for having, you know, groceries delivered to my door because it makes me look like I'm uh, not doing my job uh, or something. I, I don't know what those norms were. Like I said, I'd love for somebody to deconstruct it. But there is between uh, where I am now and where I want to go, this invisible furniture. And if you ask this series of questions, you can begin to reveal that furniture and figure out how to get it out of your way. I think time, I don't know that that's really a variable as much as it is just this invisible, these invisible obstacles. Sometimes there are things beyond our control, like the, uh, you know, the uh, economic environment when we're trying to make a change that can uh, facilitate that change, but we can't control for that. So we have to figure out what's in between us and, and winning. So there are two conditions under which we cannot see norms. 
One is if we're inside the group that is affected by them, and the other is if we're outside the group that isn't affected by them, but that is affected by them. Uh, if we're insiders, we're a fish in water, like you said, and we can't see. Uh, it, it's very hard to familiarize yourself uh, with things that you've just become accustomed to. The best way to understand it is trying to remember back to the first time that you had dinner at a friend's house when you were a kid, and it was the first time that you noticed that your family had a certain way of doing things because you were around a different family, and it didn't even occur to you that there were these rules that your family had because you had been around them all the time. Uh, I've been fortunate enough to travel with you, Lee Sean, and uh, we've been to other countries, and I get to see how weird my own rules are uh, held up against theirs. So one way that we can't see them is if we're inside them. The other way we can't see them is if we're outside them. And that's because norms are held in place by a series of subtle cues. People, you know, maybe in New York, somebody will yell at you for doing something wrong, for violating a social norm. But in the rest of the world, people don't yell at you for doing it. They just sort of look at you a little funny. And if you're not part of the culture, if you violate a norm on an elevator in China, they don't yell at you. They don't even look at you. They just subtly have a way of telling each other that they've broken some sort of social code. And so we recognize that you can't tell from the inside and you can't tell from the outside. So that's where our system came in of questions that allow us to interrogate the environment to reveal this, this hidden furniture. Uh, and there are six sort of dimensions that we figured out to look at by sort of dissecting the actors related to the situation and to the history of the situation and projections about it and uh, all the, the, the six dimensions. I don't want to bore everybody with them right now. But uh, if you interrogate it thusly, you can begin to reveal the hidden furniture, whether you're inside it or outside it. You know, when we're talking about different norms within communities, when you have different communities interacting that have different norms, I'm wondering, like, how they're meant to get on together when they're trying to do something jointly. You know, this is this question of diversity and how do diverse society, you know, we were using political examples earlier, but how, how can, like, a demographically and experientially diverse society take collective action? You know, and it's this, this question of, like, if we're operating with different norms uh, and, and even mental models for how something, uh, for how some change is affected, how can people do it together? That's a really uh, interesting it, question. It isn't a question I've tackled directly. Off the top of my head, a couple of things occur to me. The first is, is that I suspect that there are norms related to dealing with the other that have to be moved out of the way. And these mm -hmm. are unspoken, unwritten, unverbalized never verbalized rules that prevent me and you from collaborating effectively that have to do with how we deal with the other person or the other group, and that we'd have to interrogate those and get those rules moved out of the way somehow. The other is we have found that the joint inquiry into norms is a very uh, useful activity for triggering a collaboration. So. Mm -hmm diverse groups who come together and work on what the heck is holding us back. And if they go to the normative space, you know, normative space isn't terribly political. You know, everybody's subject to norms. So uh, we've just found that that's an interesting joint project. 
to your point now, like norm exploration of norms isn't necessarily political. I think it's uh, almost pre-political. That's exactly um, right. I think, yeah, I think that's that's a really helpful lens here. So remember, you always got to figure out where you're starting and where it is you want to end up. And what you described is we're starting with a diverse group of people that don't have a history of working together. And where we want to get is one cohered group that understands and is comfortable working effectively together. That I would be interested in the norms that are in our way that reinforce us not working with the other. And I don't know what those rules are, but they exist. They exist for all of us. If they didn't exist, we'd all work together with people we don't agree with. But somehow we don't. And I'll tell you, by the way, I don't think that is an intellectual. I don't think we're intellectually motivated not to work together. I don't think we're pathologically, you know, we're individually, psychologically demotivated to work with each other. I think that's a function of social norm. I think, that, you know, we run the risk by working with the other of being kicked out of our group. And that's worth investigating. I, I agree with you. There's something that before conscious intent there. Yeah, that, uh, that, that's right. Because... So, and it's not individual intent. You know, Lee Sean and I had a conversation the other day, uh, very briefly, I guess it was yesterday, about personas and how in user experience design, uh, we develop personas or you develop personas that say, you know, uh, Joanne is a 41-year-old tech executive and she has three children and two dogs, and this is what motivates her. What might be even more interesting is understanding the persona of a group and what they value and how they make decisions and how they keep each other in line and what they won't tolerate. And that trying to reconcile, you know, sort of group social dynamic personas may be more interesting and I think more productive. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's also these diverse groups with different kinds of shared purposes, right? Because when we look at the commercial sphere, there's global companies have existed for a while now and they've been ta tackling these problems of how do you get culturally diverse groups to work together with often these singular goals of maximizing profits or right, revenues. But when we change the purpose to more political purposes or to other kinds of purposes that have to be negotiated and shared, then it becomes a lot trickier. That, I think that's right. Though we've worked in that space with giant corporations. So uh, to try to help them understand, you know, this in the case of uh, one company, a giant company doing work in virtually every country in the world, uh, we needed to deconstruct the norms of the company within the company and move some of those norms out of the way if they were to work together more effectively on this global initiative. So it's doable, but it we got to figure out what these unwritten, unspoken rules are that are in our way. And that's all for this episode of FUSAPOD. To learn more about our guest, Jeff Leitner, and his work, and to get a link to the social innovation dynamics, visit our site, fusa.com slash podcast. That's F as in Frankenfurter, two O's, two S's, A as in apple pie, dot com slash podcast. See you next time on FusaPod, a podcast about creativity, community, and the things that matter. I'm Lee Sean Huang. See you next time. FusaPod.